Hey, you are listening to the Missio Day School of Theology podcast. My name is Johnny Morrison. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you for listening to this class that we did on how to read your Bible. For more information about the Bible, information about the church, or ways to get connected, check out our website at missioslc.com. Thanks for listening. So here's, I want to just start with some convictions that I have that I think are both important to name, but I think also set up some of the tension of this conversation. The first um, to me is this, that Jesus is the supreme and ultimate revelation of God to the world. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. Um, this is what Colossians 1 says, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It's what John says in the beginning of his gospel, that no one has ever seen God, but his son, who is God, has made him known to the world. So if we want to know who God is, we look to Jesus. We want to know what God is like, what God's character is like, how God operates in the world. We look at Jesus. So that's the first and maybe most important revelation or most important foundational truth to me. The second is that all scripture is, the Greek word here is theonoustos, God breathed. That's the language from 2 Timothy 3.16. Sometimes you'll see it is inspired. Um, We can talk more about what that means later, but it's, At its base level, I think, it means that somehow God is at work in the creation, formation of the text that we call our Bible. So I believe that all of it is, at some level, God is engaged with it. And then finally, Jesus is the focal point of the Bible. So the Bible is about Jesus. That's what makes it significant to me. That's what means it means something. It is about Jesus. That leads, though, I think, to a very difficult tension, which is how can the Bible be both about Jesus and inspired by God when it contains content, messages, and ideas that violate our understanding of Jesus? At least this, for me, is the chief question when we're studying the Old Testament. Like, if it's about Jesus, if it's through Jesus, and Jesus is... um, who we see Jesus to be in the New Testament, specifically the Jesus displayed on the cross who gives his life over for his enemies, how do we reconcile the difficult content, messages, and ideas that seem so different than that in the Old Testament? And I think um, there's a lot of options on the table. Like you can either change your understanding of Jesus to correlate with the Old Testament, but I think that feels like you're taking the chief revelation of Jesus and making it secondary to something else. Uh, You can try to reconcile them all together. You can ignore them. But I think at whatever cost, we have to, as people who love Jesus, it's like we have a responsibility, I think, to try and figure out what is happening in that tension. I told this story in the last class, so some of you may have already heard it, but I think about it like if I saw my wife, Tori, like walking on the street and uh, I see her about to walk up to like, a, like an unsheltered person living on the street who's asking for money, and I, th- I see this moment about to happen, my gut assumption is because I know Tori, I think I know what she's going to do. Like, I think she's just going to be kind. Like, I think she's going to be a human being to another human being and just be kind. Maybe she'll give some money. Maybe she'll have a conversation. But what if instead of that, Tori grabbed the dude's hat that he was like asking money for, kicked him over, and then ran away? Like that image would so violate my relationship with Tori, the way I think about Tori, how I know Tori, 
that because I know her, I would want to investigate further because I, there's no, in my mind, there's no way that scenario is as simple as I think it is. There's no way that it is like simply that Tori is actually far more cruel than I ever knew her to be. Like that doesn't make sense. That doesn't correspond to how I know her. So I have this like obligation almost to continue to engage the story and to find the truth and to entertain other possibilities. Like who knows what, a whole other series of possibilities until I can find the answer because I believe uh, that Tori is better than that. And I think the same thing is true in terms of this conversation about Jesus. Like Jesus is so good in the New Testament that the moments of conquest in the Old Testament to me feel like watching Tori kick over an unsheltered person where it's like, it's so different than the Jesus that we see in the New Testament that something else has to be happening in my mind. Like some other thing has to be happening either under the surface of that or that we can press into further. There has to be some other conversations or questions because it so violates the image of Jesus that we have. So with that, I think I just went too far. With that, that gets us to our first big idea. And I'm gonna hit some of these kind of fast because I think they, they just level some groundwork to get us even further in here. Here's the first big idea. The God on the cross is the God of the Bible. All images and actions need to be compared, contrasted, and wrestled with in light of Jesus's sacrificial and loving death. That's similar to the conviction I said in the foundational truths, but it is the primary conviction I hold about who God is and about Jesus. Uh, one famous theologian named Karl Barth said it this way, God is never more fully God than in the powerlessness and humiliation of the cross. Far from contradicting the divine omnipotence, the cross supremely reveals it. Nothing demonstrates more fully that the cross than the cross, how great is the omnipotence of God's love. What Bart is arguing is that the cross isn't a weak moment in the life of God. It's not an anomaly in the life of God, but it is the chief display of God's very being, of the way that God works, of the way that God operates in the world. This is the argument that I think Paul makes in Philippians chapter two, when he tells the church to have this mind amongst yourself, who though, or because he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, becoming obedient even to the point of death. The argument there is that like, if you want to understand who God is, you look at Jesus. And if you want to see the chief image of who Jesus is, you look at the cross, which is a sacrificial, loving, spacious kind of God. That leads to idea number two. Israel's understanding of God is incomplete and shaped by their context, neighboring religions, common ideas, and ancient assumptions. Now, I want to show you this, which is a few moments in the text. The Bible is not shy about this idea. One of my favorite examples, and one of those powerful, is in Psalm 50, verse 21. This is like God speaking to the people of Israel. And he says this, when you, Israel, did these things, talking about like kind of abhorrent things, and I, God, kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you. So this is God making an accusation against the people of Israel, saying that Israel's understanding of God is sometimes not right. And sometimes Israel projects onto God false understandings of God. Sometimes they project onto God false ideas that look more like the culture around them. Here's another good example from Hosea 2.16. Um, 
The prophet Hosea says this, someday, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and you will no longer call me my master. I like this reference a lot because the assumption here is that Israel has an understanding of God that isn't complete. They think of God as a master and God longs for or desires a different kind of relationship with God's people. One that is relational, one that is more tender. And then in Mark chapter 10, we get another interesting moment where Israel's idea of who God is is not complete. In Mark 10 verse four, uh, Jesus having a conversation with the Pharisees and the Pharisees say, Moses allowed a man to write a divorce certificate and divorce his wife. But Jesus said to them, he wrote this commandment for you because of your unyielding hearts. Now, this is such a fascinating statement. This means that in Torah, the inspired law of God, right? There is a command that Moses gave to the people that is more a reflection of Israel's sinfulness or Israel's poor understanding than it is of God's intention. So there's three different examples. Psalm 50, Israel projects onto God images of God that are not true. Hosea 2.16, God desires Israel to have a different understanding of who God is and is at work updating that. And in Mark 10, verse 4 through 5, into the text, into the Bible, into the law, comes ideas that are more reflection of Israel's unyielding hearts than it is of God's true intentions, that God accommodates the beliefs, needs, sinfulness even of the people of Israel, and it makes its way into the text. How does that feel to everybody? Does that, does that seem like a strange idea? Does that seem like a challenging idea? Is that, um, does that make sense of your understanding of scripture? That's actually a little bit challenging for me in, in this way. Um, you know, I kind of cited this example in Samuel, and I, I can't remember if it was that instance or a similar one, but I, I know there's a point at which the Israelites are basically told, like, hey, your failure to do this is why um, you're facing these negative consequences now. Like, it's almost like the text sort of, like, doubles down into that um, by saying, like, the Lord is saying that, like, your failure to you know, do these sort of atrocities has now resulted in these negative consequences. And um, in, in some ways that almost puts the, the idea that, um, you know, the, the Israelites have an incomplete understanding of God, which clearly they, they do. I think there's, there's a lot of different instances of that. You know, we see like, you know, um, uh, Solomon, like having these like inordinate number of wives and it's not really sort of directly um condemned but like it's pretty obvious that like yeah that's not what god sort of wants for solomon right um and, and so that happens like countless times but this almost sort of puts it into the text and kind of relates back to that that first sort of foundational idea that you talked about about scripture being um like divinely inspired um you know, referencing like the, the text from Timothy, um, it, it would almost imply that like that maybe that even extended to some of the writers of scripture or some of these prophets that some of the ideas that they were bringing maybe weren't um, fully fleshed out or they weren't like didn't have a complete understanding of God. And that that's kind of hard to wrestle with, too. 
So James, just to make sure I understand <clears throat> what you're naming there, um, it is difficult to under, it is difficult to wrestle with that the potentially inspired authors might have had an incomplete understanding of God. Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Oh, totally. I I think that's a great that is I think that is deeply challenging when. Um, I will just say for my own sake, and then other people can respond how they feel about it. I think it's deeply challenging because um, the notion of inspiration sometimes takes the form of like, for better or for, for, for lack of a better kind of example, almost golden tablets that come out of the sky. And the text is, is yeah, for lack of a better way, it's like, it's like it's golden tablets. The reason, um, but I think that scripture, the, the, what I'm coming to believe more and more um, is that scripture looks like, the, to me, the way God always operates in the universe, which is fully respecting the human participants who are a part of the process with God. So even the phrase, God breathed, which is why I translated that God breathed as opposed to inspired, because I think the phrase God breathed speaks to how there is like a, almost like a conversation between humans and God in the process. And that God accommodates humans in the writing of the text. So again, for example, this Mark 10, verse 45, this is Moses allowed a man to write a divorce to his wife because they were unyielding. God is literally in the text, something God does not want is happening. And God is accommodating the unyielding hearts of humans into the text or um, yeah. So I, I think there's a, there's an interesting um, way in which that happens, but I think that that's how God works in other places also, right? The incarnation and the cross, God allows himself to be acted upon by humans. And, and the argument in this I'm making is that the scriptures are the same way. Ample, is it your, do I see your hand up? Yeah. Um, so I read a book a while ago that um, is very related to this topic and it kind of unpacks things and it doesn't pack it back together again for me. So it's called, it's either For the Bible Tells Me So or The Bible Tells Me So by Peter Enns. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And so he, um, the phrase that I took away from that book is that like God lets the authors of the Bible kind of speak in their own language, so yes. to speak. And there's like a lot of cultural examples and things that like are pulled from similar uh, timeframes, but different religions. But the thing that I struggle with it, like it, and it makes sense to me that like people don't have a perfect vision of God. What I fail to understand at this point then is like, so what do we do with those texts at all? Like if they were wrong about God, why do we even read them? Like what's, yeah. what are we supposed to get out of them? Yeah, what a great, what a great question. What a great question. There's an, um, oh, let's jump in late here. Let me just let in Andrew. Um, so there's a church father um, named Origen, who's like a very famous early church father. And, and, and Origen had the same conception of scripture that like there are things in there that make their way into the Bible because God allows them to but are more reflections of like the context, culture, voices of the people. But Origen's notions, they're still inspired. And this is also what I would say. 
they are still inspired by God. So God is still over the process. But now the work is about actually working, it's like participating with the Spirit in discovering how and why this text was included. Like what, why is a text about, we'll get here even further. Like why does God allow there to be texts about violence in the Old Testament that seem to contradict who God's person is? Well, I'm not saying this is the answer, but it does seem that it sets up a very strange tension with Jesus in the New Testament or how I think God is actually also trying to reveal God's self in the Old Testament versus the cultures around them. Um, or or here's, here's maybe a more practical example. Um, Abraham lived in a culture where people believed kids should be sacrificed to God. Like that was not a totally, that was not a, a thing that could, that was a thing that could happen in the world around them. So it is really substantial when the end of that revelation is God not demanding a sacrifice, but providing a scapegoat. But it is fascinating that Abraham still believes God would require a sacrifice of a child. And we would all say today, I think, that God would never require the sacrifice of a child. So God accommodates or allows this like strange revelation of God's self to be in that text. And then what we get at the end of it is a really beautiful revelation of how different God is than the um, gods of Babylon around them, which is the context and culture in which Abraham would have been receiving that message. So then it's still, the whole thing is still inspired, but it's inspired in the same way the cross is, that it is, it doesn't, it doesn't hide human brokenness. It doesn't hide from the reality of humans. It actually uses human brokenness to make a, a grand and glorious revelation of who God is. Yeah, thanks for that. I love that. And it, it kind of highlights too that like, um, it's the cultural context and like knowing that they misunderstood things is actually critical to understanding that because I feel like we've misinterpreted that so much that like he passed the test by being willing to sacrifice his son, but like that wasn't the thing to highlight at all. It was yes. highlighting who God was. Yes. Yep. Feel free to keep asking questions. I'm going to, that is really good. Both those Abby and um, James have brought up are really good for the second or third idea. So feel free to put your hand up or even on mute and just start talking. But I am going to go to this one just because I think it names some things that have been named. Oh, really quickly. I just wanted to comment on that. Um, Like that's a really great example, but in some ways it almost makes it harder when we come to a text where, you know, um, Isaac sort of gets this, like, uh, you know, this, this Hail Mary, this kind of like last 30 minutes at five minutes at midnight, like he gets a reprieve. Um, mm. So it almost makes it harder when we don't get that sometimes. Yeah. Like that resolution that reveals, uh, you know, a, a loving God of grace, um, <laughs> you know. So. Yeah, James, that's totally true. That's totally true. That it is that I use an example that is pretty clean in terms of like here's the God rescuing at the end. Um, I I do think, uh, and we'll 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 get here too. Like I'm setting up some stuff, and then we'll dive into maybe some more like conquesty things in a second. I do think you see God often trying to challenge how Israel understands God, and Israel almost refusing. Um, so that, and that gets us here. So big idea number three, Israel believes, and I think falsely, 
God is like other ancient Near Eastern deities. And these deities, you could call them tribal deities. Like they believe that there is tribal gods who represent the tribes, cultures, countries of the individual like society. So Israel falsely believes that God is like other Near Eastern deities who wage physical war on behalf of their chosen nations as demonstrations of their glory and superiority. So Israel has this concept of God that is limited and incomplete. And mixed into that idea, I'm arguing, is notions of gods that come from culture far more than from God's revelation of God's self to them. And the tricky thing about that, and the very beautiful thing I think about that, is that God stoops or accommodates Israel often. I don't think God abandons Israel. Uh, I think to James's point, like, God doesn't always update them. Um, God doesn't always change it. But I do think that throughout the text, you see God working to lead Israel into deeper understanding of who God is. Um, And that leads here. And we'll we'll look at some examples of this and, and then continue to work through. Big idea number four, going back to this original idea. Jesus on the cross is the ultimate revelation of God. Jesus shows us who God is, how God works, and how God fights. This is not a denial or a change of God's tactics in the Old Testament, but I think has always been true of God. So this, I wanted to put all these things together and then use an illustration from some of the different conquest narratives. This is later in the Bible, but um, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament comes from 2 Kings um, 1. I'm just going to pull it up real fast so you can see it. Can you see a uh, Bible now? Hey, yes. this is working out. Second Kings 6 v. 1. So um, this is a fascinating story. Um, this is like, this is when the Bible just gets real weird too. Like you have like Kings, you have the prophets, Elisha and Elijah, which have so many difficult questions you have to ask. So, um, there is a conflict that is happening in Israel. And um, you have the Arameans are fighting against Israel. But someone is giving away, just trying to give you a bit of context. Someone is giving away some of the Aramean information, like battle plans to Israel. So it's like they're being, they're like somehow avoiding attacks. And the king of Aramea finds out that it's Elisha, this prophet. So they track down Elisha the whole army, they find Elisha and um, try to capture him because they're like, we'll take you over. They find this guy and Elisha, they find Elisha, but Elisha, uh, oh, I was going to get in here. Um, That'll take longer than I want to read it. Never mind. I'm just going to tell you. Um, But they find Elisha, and Elisha lies to them about being Elisha and says, but I'll take you to where you need to go. So Elisha leads this, like, false, this, like, king of Aramea into the land of Israel. And, like, before, basically, yeah, here, I'm just going to start from here. The Arameans come towards him. So Elisha prayed to the Lord. Sorry, I messed the story up just a little bit. 
Just get excited. Strike the nation with blindness. And the Lord struck them with blindness, just as Elijah had asked. Elisha said to them, so you have this whole army who's become blind. And Elisha said to them, this isn't the right road or right city. So follow me and I'll lead you to the man that you were looking for. So he's going to take them to supposedly to Elisha, but they're blind. When they arrived in Samaria, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. The Lord opened their eyes and they saw that they were right in the middle of Samaria. When he saw them, Israel's king said to Elisha, should I kill them, my father? And this is what Elisha says. No, don't kill them. Did you capture them with your own sword or bow? Do you have the right to kill them? Put food and water in front of them so they can eat, drink, and return to their master. So the king gave them a great feast and they ate and drank and the king let them go. And then they returned to their master. And after that, Aramean raiding parties didn't come to Israel anymore. Now, here's why I love this story. I think that if we look at Jesus, who is on the cross, who is the person who absorbs hostility, twists it against itself so that evil is overcome in creative, nonviolent ways, I think this story looks more like Jesus and is how God wants to fight all battles throughout scripture. And if the people of Israel were willing to trust God, this is how God would show up and fight their battles for them. Not through like the same mechanisms that the other deities use, not through the way the other nations do, but through crazy gestures of creativity, gestures that have a table centered at the middle of them, gestures that stop people from being enemies. Aramea stops raiding Israel after the end of the story because of what just happened to them but it was out without like force or violence. I think that if Jesus is who God is always, then this, and we'll see other moments too that are like this, this moment is actually how God wants to operate. But we have to wrestle with the tension that Israel rarely believes that God wants to operate this way or has an imagination for God operating this way. And instead they often believe that God is going to instead act like a tribal deity, wage war on behalf of their chosen nations as demonstrations of glory, because that's what everybody around them believes. Um, so I have, we, can, we can start to look at this a bit more in the um, conquest narratives, and this might start to get at some of James's uh, more direct questions, but just before we go into applied stuff, anybody have any thoughts or questions that emerge from those two ideas? Yeah, I'm just reminded of, you know, especially Christians who uh, are very sort of into spiritual warfare of how, like, we might be doing that now today in a similar way. Like, our conception of God, you know, we interpret him in ways that um, similar to what Israel may have been doing. Mm. And, and it calls me to question, like, where am I doing that? Mm. No, that's, that's a great reflection, James. Cool. Again, feel free to continue to shout out. Um, so here's, here's, so those big ideas, I think hopefully lay some groundwork. And now I want to walk through some of the conquest stuff and just try to like play it out a little bit and apply it. So here's, here's, I believe Israel operates out of a false imagination. God wants to do this differently. And here's some clues to, to I think, prove the points that we've made. Clue number one, I'm going to argue God wanted to give Israel the promised land through nonviolent means. And here is an example of that. 
in Exodus 23, verse you're, 23. You're still showing. You're still showing the Bible. Oh, oh boy. Is it up now? Sweet. Okay. Clue number one. This is from Exodus 23, verse 27. Uh, so God is speaking to the people of Israel before they're going to enter the promised land, right? This is like they've been rescued from Egypt. God's kind of like setting them up. What's going to happen? And God says this, my terrifying reputation will precede you and I'll throw all the people that you meet into a panic. I'll make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I'll send insect swarms in front of you and drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites before you. I won't drive them out before you in a single year so the land won't be abandoned and the, and the wild animals won't multiply around you. So I'm gonna drive them out slowly. I'll drive them out before you little by little until your numbers grow and you eventually possess the land. So here God tells Israel how he will operate in the promised land. Something will happen. The language here, insects is sometimes translated hornets. Um, it's like a little hard to get people's mind around, but it's like some kind of bug, some kind of swarm, has like Exodus-like uh, evocations in it, and God will drive them out slowly. Here is another example where God says something similar. Um, this is from uh, Leviticus 18, 24. Do not make yourself unclean in any of these ways, because that is how the nations that I am throwing out before you became unclean. That is also how the land became unclean, and I held it liable for punishment. And then here's the point. And the land vomited out its inhabitants. So again, the language there is like kind of vague, but it is a non, the image that's being created is the land has become inhospitable, sort of like Wally style movie. And people have left the land because it wasn't good to live on. And God's like, that's actually how I'm gonna, I'm gonna send some kind of swarm. The land's gonna become inhospitable and that's gonna drive it out. Not armies, not fighting, but something like this. The means isn't really the issue, I think in this moment. Um, I think what's more important in this moment is that God is trying to show Israel that he will be the one to remove people from the land and it won't be through violence. The issue is that God will do it and he'll do it nonviolently. That's the thing I think is happening. Uh, the problem is that God's nonviolent plans and promises are reworked by Israel into violent instructions. So the issue is, is that I think God's violent promises or nonviolent promises are reworked by Israel into violent ways. So, um, so here's that same promise from Exodus gets picked up again by Israel in Deuteronomy 7.20. And it's taking the same language. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the horns among them until even the survivors who hide from you have perished. So this is a fascinating change of the purpose of the hornets. Originally, it's to drive out the people of the land slowly so that the land won't become overwhelmed. And here, I would argue that the people of Israel understand this now as it is in order that no one can hide from them anymore, which is a fascinating, I think, change of perspectives. Johnny, a uh, quick question. Uh -huh. First, can you full screen that? But second, um, do you know if the change from like, um, I, I forget what the word was used before. Was it locusts in, in the Exodus passage? Do you know if that's inherent in the Hebrew? Um, the change from like something that might be like uh, 
not necessarily something that attacks humans, but attacks crops to like hornets, which would presumably be like stinging people. Cause that too, I think is interesting in a similar way. Oh, that's a good question, James. I don't know why the, I think I'm using the NIV in this place, why the NIV changed it in that place. Um, that's a good question. I, I will uh, look into that though. I think that's a super fascinating question. Um, you see different translations translate it a little differently. So hornet is actually not the direct word. It's like swarm or insect um, is more probably an accurate piece of word there for that link, that text. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure if like it was using the same word in both the passage in Exodus and Deuteronomy. It is using the same word. That, that okay. I can confirm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's yeah. helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Um, here is, here's one scholar. Um, I think says it really helpfully. This is Greg Boyd, um, who wrote a marvelous book, actually a series of books on this issue. He says this, quote, Israelites unwittingly transformed these countercultural nonviolent plans into exceedingly violent plans that conformed their fallen and culturally conditioned expectations of how deities were supposed to go about helping their people acquire new real estate. Um, so th the argument that Greg Boyd is making is the same one that we have just made, which is that Israel reimagines and reworks some of these promises that are about nonviolent uh, means into violent tools of God removing people from the land. So I want to pause again. That's two clues that I think are really fascinating in the conquest narratives. Um, anybody have any thoughts that come to mind or questions that come up? So this might be <clears throat> changing the subject a little bit and you can tell me in that, if that's the case and that's fine. Um, I think reading those texts through the lens that you've just like laid out there, that's very helpful and that makes a lot of sense if you're reading it from the vantage point of the Israelites. Um, and then from our perspective, like post New Testament, post Jesus, where it's like all the nations on the world, like he's on all of our sides. Like how do you square those texts with that perspective of like, even if the land is uninhabitable, that makes it feel like if I'm the outsider coming in, like that seems like God is not on my side, you know? I don't know if that question makes yeah. sense. Yeah, that's a good question. So, the, so the, let me just clarify. So the question you're asking is like, uh, how even, so like with, is it the, the notion of God sending people into the promised land at all? Like how is that communicating that God is on their side at all? Or like, is that what you're asking? I, yeah, I guess it's like kind of pro-Israelite and anti-everything else. Like, and yeah. how do we see that is the question I have. Yeah, I think that's really a good question. I think um, that's a really good question. I think that it is pro-Israelite. I think that's, that is meant to be the intention of this text because it's meant to be like Israel's origin story in some ways. Um, and it is the, the primary thing. It's kind of like what you're just talking about with the Isaac and Abraham story in the sense that it is trying to tell the people of Israel who they are and how God works with them in relation uh, to the world around them. Because most likely when this story is being compiled, so Israel's probably been telling it to one another for generations, but when it's being compiled, most scholars believe that it's when Israel is in Babylon which is a fascinating moment to need to recompile and retell your story um, because you are once again, the product of a, a giant empire. You are dislocated from your land 
and you don't feel like God is on your side. So I think it is meant to be pro-Israel. Um, and in that, it is trying to say that God is for the people of Israel while they are in the midst of massive marginalization and oppression. And God is in some ways for them in a way that is distinct from the empires around them so that God has a different kind of relationship with Israel than he does with Egypt. Does that mean that he's against Egypt? No, but he, God is going to challenge the power of Egypt when it is used against the people of Israel. Um, um, so I think in that sense, it's, 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 you could say it is a theological origin story of Israel to give them hope while they're in Babylon. Um, like this is, I don't mean, I don't mean to say something that's like deeply controversial while we're in this class. Cause I have, a, I have a pretty conservative understanding of scripture. Uh, like I believe that it's inspired. I believe that God's working through it. But like one thing that is interesting is a lot of scholars don't believe um, that the Exodus story happens the way the Bible says it does. Now that might be a really big problem if what the Exodus story is trying to do is give us a history of ancient Israel. Um, I don't believe, even, I still believe the Exodus story is happening. So please hear me. I believe that. Um, but I don't think that's what the text is actually trying to do. I think the text is primarily trying to tell us who God is in relationship to the people of Israel. And things like then this conversation about how God shows up with violence, how God shows up on the people of Israel's behalf, how Israel's supposed to show up, how Israel remembers their own history become really important because it's like, like what kind of imagination are you going to have as a religious people when you're in Babylon? Um, so, yeah, does that, I know it's a long-winded answer, but does that start to get at some of the things you're naming, Abby? Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah. So then it, it gets, goes back to like, what is, the, yeah, what is the context of this thing? What is the purpose of this text? And who is, who is it written for in that sense? Yeah. Um, This goes actually very interesting to Abby's point. So this is clue number three that I think more is happening in the conquest narratives about how God thinks about them than Israel does. God distinctively declares military neutrality at the beginning of Joshua's conquest. This is a very famous moment, but we often forget what actually happens at this moment. So Joshua, Joshua is the person who takes over command of Israel post-Moses. Moses doesn't enter the promised land. He dies in the mountain looking in. It's a very sad story. And then um, Joshua takes over, and Joshua actually leads the conquest. So Joshua is the person who walks around Jericho, all of that. Right before Joshua goes around Jericho, he's out praying. And he has this moment where he sees like a heavenly messenger or an angel of the Lord, someone who is like, distinctively from God. And Joshua and him have this conversation. It says to him, to him, I don't know what I'm supposed to do there. Joshua asked them, are you for us or for our enemies? This is the person who's there. Verse 14, the angel of the Lord responds, neither. How fascinating is that? So Joshua asks the angel who is from God, whose side are you on? And the commander of the army of the Lord says, neither. Then Joshua fell down in reverence and asked him, what message does the Lord have for my servant? The commander of the Lord's army said, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. There's nothing about conquest. There's nothing justifying uh, 
Joshua's violence. It actually says very distinctively to Abby's point, God's not choosing sides in this conflict. That, I think that's a hint or a clue that something in this text and something about the way Israel is talking about God is not totally accurate of who God is or how God wants to be talked about or how God wants to be thought of in this moment. Um, oh, I just made that dice. Um, what was I doing here? Oh, yeah. Okay. So on that note, what we talked about in 2 Kings, God, this is clue number five. God repeatedly tells Israel to not trust in weapons or armies, but instead to trust in God. So again, when we talk about what is God's intention for Israel, God consistently tells them not to trust in weapons, not to build uh, sophisticated military technology. One of the reasons God tells Israel not to have a king is very specifically because the king will uh, conscript sons for war. That's like one of the reasons. God's like, don't do it. That's going to happen, just so you know. And here is, here is a text. This is from Exodus 14, 13. Moses answered to the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you. Uh, the, the Egyptians you see before you, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. So God is constantly telling the people of Israel to not have weapons, to not trust in weapons, but instead to trust in God. And we have these really beautiful moments throughout the story of God showing up on Israel's behalf in ways that are creative, distinct, and yet still nonviolent. Um, and we also have these really tragic moments where I think Israel writes on to God's story or rework God's intentions in violent ways. Let me pause there again. Um, any thoughts surfacing from that? I just want to say Johnny did not plant me to ask that question <laughs> immediately before such an appropriate. <laughs> um, I'll say I, I, it's interesting to see this sort of um, subversive streak towards the, the Israelite religion. Cause I know like in modern context, when people bring up things like, well, what about, you know, these times where the Israelites, are basically committing genocide, like, you know, what they're hinting at is like some of these other atrocities that the, that the church has perpetrated, right? So th things like, you know, mm. the crusades and, and these problems with like sex abuse scandals. And, you know, my, my general response to them is to be like, look, I, I don't disagree with you that those things are bad things. And that's part of why, like, I choose a Protestant tradition. That's part of why I choose, like, a non-denominational brand of Christianity is because I too am against those things. And, and I, I like to draw a distinction between yes. religion and the practice of religion and those fallen people and say like the God that I follow is bigger than that. Mm -hmm. And those people are sinful people. Um, but the God that I'm trying to follow isn't even though I am. Um, yeah. And so it's, it's interesting to see hints of that in the Old Testament too. Yeah, James, what a great, what a great example. It's, that's a really powerful example. It's, I think that the church has the right. I think the prophets do it. People have no problem criticizing Israel in the Bible. And you just named the same thing where it's like, no, no, no. God's intentions for Israel, for the church, 
for the modern church, for the church of the like 14th century is always to be different than we see in the crusades or in the war of the old Testament. And I, I love that that was the illustration you used. It's really helpful. Um, yeah. So big idea number five, I added those clues. I, I just think this is interesting. So the God revealed in Jesus is the God of the Bible. This God overcomes enemies and evil with a radically different, and I would argue bigger gesture of power, which is the cross or creative love. And I want to just say that idea because I think uh, it gets to this question that is maybe at the heart of how do we then interpret all of this? How do we like live with the tension of all this? And I think in some ways this question helps me do that, which is what if Israel had believed God wanted to fight for them and actually trusted God to do it? Like, I think that's in some ways the, the interpretation struggle that, we, that we're like working through in the Old Testament, which is like, we have a battle, which is, so, which is so relatable. The struggle of the Old Testament is God being faithful and committed to a people who struggle to trust. Like, that's the most relatable story of all. And that's still the story that's happening in the Old Testament, which I think reveals a lot about who God is. It reveals a lot about who we are as people. And Israel is not that much different than us, still a people who struggle to trust. But it also leads into an interpretive question, which is like, what if we believed that God was um, trustworthy in this way and would show up in this way? And I thought maybe that would be a good, we're, let's see, we're at 127. So I, I'd be interested like, to just ask that question to the group, like what if Israel had believed God wanted to fight for them and actually trusted God to do it? So like in the New Testament, you see the work of Paul sort of... um, pitching a larger tent for people, right? So he's, he's explaining like the death of Christ wasn't just for the Israelites. It's for everybody. And then proceeds to like go on these missions to, you know, Rome and, and, you know, all these different parts of the Roman empire. Um, it's not just a, an Israeli centric like ministry, right. And, and literally like living that. Um, and it'd be it, like it'd be interesting to see a world in which Israel hadn't been adversaries to things like, you know, the Babylonian Empire, but instead had ministered to them and had made them part of God's kingdom instead of enemies of God's kingdom. Mm. Mm-hmm. And God. I, I believe, I, I can't tell you the verse, but I think God says what would have happened. He says, like, you are to be my people and to, like, shine a light and to have the people around you turn and look and say, whoa, that's different. Um, right? Yeah, and totally. It's... <laughs> well, and, and we even do see, we even do see an example of that in the book of Jonah, Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think um, just as we close up, I think like we've been through a lot of material because I wanted to try to get some foundational ideas in, some big questions in, and then give us some clues and some help as we translate and work through um, these like conquest narratives. But I think the reason I wanted to end on this question is I just think that this is, these kinds of questions are really helpful to me in translating and inter or interpreting Joshua and other moments of scripture because it forces us to ask like, um, uh, it's just like a more spiritual question, which then I think brings us home, which is like, where are we like Israel in this sense? Where do we refuse to trust God? And we end up fighting for ourselves instead of letting God fight for us. And how does that play out in our lives as we like seize control outside of God, right? Then it becomes the same set of really beautiful questions that we're always asking. So um, yeah, anything else? Um, I don't want to keep everybody too long because I tried to, I wanted to keep this to right about an hour, but um, anything else emerging from this conversation? Any, could spend a few more minutes together. Can you share the name of the um, series that you mentioned that Greg Boyd wrote? Um, yeah, he has a couple of books. Um, one that is really good is um, called Inspired Imperfection, which is him talking about the Bible. And then um, the other one that he wrote specifically on um, violence in the Old Testament is called Cross Vision, I think. And then there's also like a really big one um, that if you really want to get into, you can, which is uh, like a two volume, uh, thousand pages of uh, crucifixion of the warrior God. So there's also, you can also go that way if you'd like to. I, I don't know if this opens too much, Rick, can of worms, but I'm kind of curious, like in light of what we were just talking about, like where do you see the, the claims of God's supernatural intervention in a military situation in the Old Testament, like, you know, or, I mean, you know, honestly, even the, you know, Moses holding his staff up thing or, or, or Gideon or, or even the one right in second Kings close to what you were talking about where, you know, like the city's under siege and then it's like, Oh yeah, they're, they're all dead. Now you can go loot their camp. Right. Like, or, or actually I think they were in the right now. So I'm not sure. But, you know, like, there there does seem to be a lot of claims of at least strategically and tactically quite untenable, unwinnable situations that, that the Bible claims God intervened in those things. And, you know, maybe maybe it is just kind of what you were saying about, like, he's, you know, like what you were saying about the divorce thing, right? You know, well, okay, God God is working with their hard hearts and, and their they're expecting him to be this militaristic thing. And so maybe he does deliver in those situations in a way that he wouldn't have preferred to, but he does. Is, is that maybe kind of the right path to go down when thinking about that sort of thing? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think Israel definitely believes later that God does those things. I hear, here's an interesting example. I wasn't going to use it, but I just have, I have the slide here so I can pull it up really fast. Um, and I didn't decide not to. So, we get a similar moment to what you're describing in Joshua 11, where Israel overcomes like a substantial battle. Um, and it seems to be God's help. And it's an interesting moment because in Joshua 11:6, the Lord talks to Joshua and says, do not be afraid of them because by this time tomorrow, I'll hand them over to Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots, which is like a pretty intense thing to do, but that's the command. 
And then you go just a few verses later, and it says, so Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merom and attacked them. But that is not what God said to do. Like, that's actually distinctively not what God said to do. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them and pursued them all the way to greater Sidon, to all these different regions, until no survivors were left. I think this is just a fascinating moment where, um, Austin, I think what you said is really possible. Like, God is faithful to his people and so, like, shows up on their behalf even in this moment. Um, Or, on the other side, too, it's also a moment where Israel reinterprets a non it's this is violent, but it's not violent against people, a nonviolent command into something that is distinctively violent. Um, and then still understands it back to that point of a tribal deity being on their half, like that God is doing this on behalf of them, their victory over. But it's fascinating that the moment that says, What did God actually say? It's this you are to hamstring the horses and burn their chariots, not you are to attack them at uh, Miram. So I, that doesn't answer necessarily kind of the question you just asked, Austin, but I think it names the tension. Yeah, you kind of see that in the Battle of Jericho too, right? They're called to sort of march around these walls until they just sort of supernaturally crumble. Um, and then I think they go in and just start like murdering people, right? But like that was the choice that they made, not necessarily the command from God. And like typically you would expect to see like a a major siege upon a like fortified city with that and and instead like it's sort of this non-violent thing that god has set up to them and their their response to that is kind of on them in a similar way yeah becky were you gonna say something i felt like i saw you lean forward so just wanted to make sure you got a chance to if you were going to i was like trying to hear i think but i i think it just like listening to it makes it makes total sense and i i'm just grateful that you you shared. And I, what it came to mind for me is just when um, when Jesus was born, how everyone, and just like his life, everyone, especially, you know, the Israelites and the Jews were expecting a king in a way that they had imagined it. And I feel like this correlates to that and that he was just going to be totally different. And the Israelites were also kind of, you know, thinking of him, thinking of their God in this kingly fashion, this culturally um, acceptable and predictable king. And I think that from what you're describing, it sounds like that versus of who God revealed himself to be in Jesus. Yeah. It makes sense. I think sometimes I'm okay with like the mystery and the not making sense of things. Um, But it is really nice when, things do kind of all come together. Yeah. Yeah. Becky, I think that's a really good, um, like illustration. Like, yeah, nobody in the new Testament seems to get what Jesus is up to. Why would we expect it to be any different in the old Testament? Like they still don't get it, but this is still who God is. God is consistent and true. I think in being like Jesus. 